in a series called Back to Basics, all right? It's at Hillsborough Village only, so if you're here, this is an exclusive series, okay? It's awesome. Um, but we've covered prayer and Bible so far, and the approach we're doing as a church, we're going, hey, what are some basic Christian practices? And let's re-remember if we've forgotten, or let's learn for the first time if we never knew, why Christians do these things, why we find it important. And, but let's not leave it at just the why, the informative side. Uh, let's dig into participation because we've, we've talked about the stats every single week. When we participate, our brains remember like 70 to 80% of what we're participating in. When we have a conversation of, hey, how do we actually do this? We'll retain it. When we just do the information thing, we only remember like 20%. That's like incredibly different, right? Like, so if we just sit here and talk about it, there's like a 80% chance you walked out of here and nothing really happened, all right? But once we start talking to each other, once we start working it down to the ground, we've got like an 80% chance. So we'll spend one week going, hey, why did we do this? What's the reason? What do Christians believe about it? Uh, and then we'll spend the next week going, how do we do it practically? Like it's, as soon as you leave, my hope is on the how weeks, you literally have three or four ideas that you can start doing right then and there, no matter where you're at. And so um, we've covered prayer and Bible. And this week we're introducing a new um, basic Christian practice, which is worship. All right, we're gonna talk about worship, okay? I don't know um, what worship uh, looked like for you growing up. Uh, maybe it wasn't in your household. Maybe you perceived it to be something, I don't know. Maybe when you think of worship, you think of sitting very still and being quiet and closing your eyes and like just holding your hands out and meditating. Or I, I don't know. I, I know for me, it was something like when I was at this theme park called Carowinds. It was in Charlotte, North Carolina. Shout out, do you know Carowinds? Are you serious? Yeah, they have the standing roller coaster. The, the one that goes just straight up and down is the, yeah, just get your stomach, yeah. Anyway, the, at Carowinds, they have a uh, uh, amphitheater, for lack of a better term, I don't know, an outdoor venue, and Michael W. Smith came there. And let me tell you something, a nine-year-old, no, 11-year-old me, I'm always seven or eight in my stories, but I think I was like 11 at this point. 11-year-old um, me loved Michael W. Smith, all right? And he, I love him now, he's awesome. And uh, have you ever heard the song that he sings? It's called Let It Rain. Let it rain. You know what I'm talking about? That didn't help. So let it rain. Uh, and then the Australian guy comes out and reads a psalm. He's like, the Lord reigns. And you're like, oh my goodness, I just heard scripture and it's by an Australian. Like, Lord, like you are here. <laughs> this is amazing. Um, but I remember being like 11 years old, listening to Michael W. Smith singing that song. And, and legitimately, I was just moved. I just stood up. I was worshiping. I was crying. I was just like, wow. Like I was like in love with God. Like that was a good example for me of what worship looked like. Usually it was in a communal setting, a corporate setting where a lot of people were gathered. There's usually someone up front singing, right? Doing, leading it. Uh, maybe you've been to a Hillsong concert and it's like a bunch of EDM music until the concert starts. Then the concert starts and there's just like amazing video presentation and laser lights and smoke. And it's just like, what is happening? It's amazing. And worship, I don't know. I don't know what it looked like for you. Um, but because worship can look so different considering your experience, right? We've all experienced different uh, versions, different ways of worship. I want to give us a working definition, okay? I just found this in the dictionary via Google, okay? Worship is the feeling or expression of reverence and adoration for a deity or God, okay? That feel good? Doesn't matter. It's the definition. The feeling or expression of reverence and adoration for a deity or God. And then I kind of added, it often involves actively showing that, right? You have this internal to external journey, right? You feel, you, uh, you have this reverence and adoration, and then you express it in the external, okay? So let's start breaking down worship. 
Worship is both an internal reality and an external reality, all right? There's internal levels to worship and there's external levels to worship. On the internal side, worship is a matter of the heart, all right? Worship is a matter of the heart. It's a posturing of the heart. It is choosing to elevate something higher than everything else, all right? Worship is choosing to elevate something or someone higher than everything else. Does that make sense? All right, um, John Tyson uh, gives a, a sermon on worship and idolatry. He's from New York City. He is amazing. He's a great teacher. If you're looking for a podcast, like good sermons, John Tyson. Don't forget that name, all right? There's no H in his name, John, J-O-N. He gives this example of when he got married. He talked about when he was looking at his wife. You know, when he was giving his vows to his wife, he was acknowledging, hey, there's other women out there. There are other suitable partners, but the significance of this ceremony is I'm saying you alone, like you are above all other women in my life from this point forward. That will never change. And I think that was a really good example of what worship is. Worship, well, not that he was worshiping his wife in that moment, but I think it's a good parallel where you go, worship is when we, we go, God, like there's other options here. There's other things to worship if I so choose. But in this moment, I am making a decision, a conscious choice to go, you are above everything else. Does that make sense? Like no one else gets to like be in your place, right? Um, so it's a matter of the heart. While the heart can be wooed to a certain extent, you might have had moments where it felt like the Holy Spirit, in essence, swept you off your feet and you were just lured into worship without really trying, right? Some amazing thing, let it rain, the Australian psalm, like, and you were just like, whoa, I didn't mean to, but here I am just like lost in the sauce of worship, right? <laughs> that can happen. You can be wooed into worship. But I would say that more often than not, worship is a choice, okay? Worship is a choice of the heart. You intentionally, over time, choose to worship. So if your method of worship until this point has been, I have to be wooed or convinced or talked into, you see my emotions? This is what it is. Uh, I see people laughing, so I wanted to acknowledge it. Um, so if your method of worship so far has been, I have to be kind of persuaded into it, you probably don't have a great worship life. Uh, it's, just, it's just how it's going to be. If you have to be lured into worship, it's Probably not great. It's, I think more often than not, healthy worship comes from choosing it on the internal, and it often translates externally, all right? Worship displays an internal reality in the physical. To give you some non-worship examples, or if you really wanted to dig deep, maybe it's worship examples, so I'll let you decide. But if you were at the big game, and the home run to win the game happens. The buzzer beater happens. Like the bump set spike to win state happens. Like, and everyone goes, okay, internally, I'm very excited. And so they start what? They start dancing and celebrating and screaming and hugging people they don't know and like punching in excitement. Like, have you ever been at a big game like that and you're like, I have never moved like this in public, but our team won. So this is the moment, right? Like that happens. Or when you're at the, like the, the ballet or the big play on Broadway and you're just sitting quietly, but you're so moved and everyone at the same time just goes, we have got to stand and applaud. This is amazing, right? Something happens internally but you end up expressing it externally, right? That, that happens in worship as well. You'll notice that uh, oftentimes in worship settings, you'll see people like on their knees or lifting their hands or maybe just sitting and like closing their eyes. And there's this moment where you go, my heart 
is like captivated. I'm choosing to be reverent. I'm in awe of. And so oftentimes we physically posture ourselves in a way that communicates it, right? It's like, man, I, I don't do this anywhere else. I don't feel these things about anyone else. So I had to express it in this way uniquely. Like I wouldn't bow down to someone else, but God, like the reverence I feel, the awe I feel, the wonder, like I bow, I do whatever. Picture like walking into the king's court. Like it's similar to that. Worship connects the internal realities with the external. It's like, I adore you, I revere you, therefore I will fill in the blank, right? Sing, dance, bow, whatever it is. Why we worship, what leads us to worship? You worship when you have chosen to deem something worthy of that act. You have decided it above all else. Worship is not a decision that is made from apathy or tradition. When we sing, that does not necessarily mean worship has just happened, right? When we sing songs on it, worship is a choice of the heart, right? A tradition and everyone just singing doesn't mean worship is taking place. It's a heart choice. It is not made from apathy or tradition. It's a conscious decision. And I believe that you do this instinctively because you were created to do it. I think that I could find people if I did the work that don't believe in God, but do worship something on some level, okay? I'm pretty meta. We won't get lost there. All right. Let's talk about specifically for Christians. Worship is as part of being a child of God as praying and reading the Bible. We did not just take a spiritual step down from the past four weeks, okay? We didn't go, hey, Bible, prayer, Okay, now let's talk about worship. Let's just chill out a little bit, right? I believe that worship is just as essential. And actually, I'd love to show this. Is this, is this the slide I need? Is this the thing? Just press the home. Did it mess up? Let's see. Hey, good luck. Worked. Um, okay, great. So uh, I want to give some scriptural basis um, for, for how important and necessary worship is and how you're gonna see it in scripture. And I wanna remind you, as you're taking notes, if you miss anything, again, my offer is always the same. I'll send you anything you want, all right? And shout out a few people that asked me for my notes. I was very thankful, it was great. Um, okay, so even if you don't want the notes, ask me. It makes me feel good. Okay, so some examples from scripture where worship is present, all right? Genesis 12, verse eight. Abram, or you might know him as Abraham, his first move upon getting this amazing promise from God. He says, you're gonna get descendants as many as the stars and the, the, the grains of sand. Like you're gonna get all these descendants. He gets this amazing promise that he will be the beginning of like the God's people, his chosen people of Israel. He builds an altar and calls upon the name of the Lord. He worships. We're gonna run through these. In Exodus 14, 31 through chapter 15, I actually changed what I went through. Verse 21, the Israelites have been delivered from Egypt and Moses leads the people in a song of praising God, like that is the response. In 1 Chronicles 16, eight, David instructs a choir to sing a song of thanks after God has delivered the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of God. In Daniel chapter three, anybody remember the VBS story of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, right? There's this moment where King Nebuchadnezzar instructs everyone, bow down to this idol, this is our God. And they understand that worship is so holy, is so important that they could never pretend to worship a God they don't believe in. So they stand, right? And then King Nebuchadnezzar throws them in a furnace. They don't burn up. It is like, ama it's an amazing, powerful story. But in that, I see this understanding of the importance um, and the, and the uh, significance of worship. Jeremiah 20, 13 instructs us to sing to the Lord who rescues the needy from the hand of the wicked. Psalm 92 and many others says, it is good to give thanks to the Lord 
to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. Luke 19.40 takes place on Palm Sunday, which is today. So happy anniversary to Luke 19.40. And also, Brittany came to the Lord on Palm Sunday. Happy anniversary to you and your walk with Jesus. That is amazing. Um, So in Luke 19.40, Jesus has been worshiped and praised. But then he says, if these people fell silent, the rocks themselves would cry out pointing to creation itself worshiping God. If you think about Luke 5 and the story of Jesus saying, hey, cast your nets out, the fish will come. The fish respond to the words of God, like creation reveres and worships the Lord. John 4.23 says, Jesus speaks of an hour, or (laughs) John 4.23 is where Jesus speaks of an hour where worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, that God is spirit and we must worship him in spirit and truth. Hebrews, I know I'm just waylaying you right now with scripture. Hebrews 12, 28 through 29 says, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Philippians 2, 10 through 11 says that Jesus has been exalted, that every knee would bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord Revelations 4 gives multiple examples of heavenly creatures and elders casting their crowns before God and declaring his name. But I wanna use this next passage, Romans 12, verse one, to frame up a couple aspects of worship for our conversation, all right? In Romans 12, verse one, Paul instructs, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Catch this, that by abstaining from the ways of the world and loving the ways of God, we offer worship, okay? I'm gonna read it one more time to emphasize. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, that by abstaining from the ways of the world and loving the ways of God, we offer worship. So what I see here is Paul is naming two sides of the same coin, okay? In worship, we one, abstain from the world, and then two, love the ways of God. That worship includes both abstaining from the ways of the world and loving and being pleasing to God. Now, this is a much bigger conversation, okay? Worship covers a lot of things, Today, I'm gonna talk about the worship, the act of worship when we are expressing our love and adoration to God, all right? So when you picture like stereotypical worship, singing or dancing or writing or drawing, like that's the worship I'm talking about when you choose to enter into a special time of worshiping the Lord. I would say that worship covers a multitude of other things, okay? But that's where we're gonna stop. So um, important note, if you're taking notes, worship declares who God is, okay? Worship declares who God is. Sub point, it also declares who God isn't. All right, I worked all week on the language for this. I hope you understand it. I could not say it in a way that articulated what my heart was trying to say, but bear with me, I think we'll understand it together. But this may seem obvious, but worship declares that God is God and that not God is in fact not God, 
okay? Work, that's the best way I thought to say it. I worked so hard and that's what I came up with, all right? Uh, worship declares that God is God and that not God is in fact not God. And we're gonna flesh this out, all right? Worship declares that God is God, that God is God, that I am human, okay? That God is creator, I am creation. We are creation, right? That he is father, that I am child, that he is king, that I am the citizen. This is a really important moment. The 10 commandment that says, no other gods before me. God says, there's no room in your worship, in your life for any other gods. There is only room for me. So this concept is simple. I did not just blow anyone's mind when I said worship is about God being God and not God being not God. In fact, you've already come up with three better ways to say what I just said, right? So I didn't say anything complex, but on the heart level, this is a much more difficult process, okay? So we get it in concept, but on the heart level, it's really hard, especially in a culture of idolatry. We live in a culture of idolatry, Back in the day when the Israelites are being freed from Egypt, they built a, a golden calf when they lost their faith in God because that was like the thing to do back then in a polytheistic society. We look at that now and go, I do not build things of gold in my spare time that I might bow down, right? Our gods are a little more subtle, a little more hard to pick out, so hopefully this will help us. So worship becomes very hard in a culture of idolatry. Um, first, this takes place with money, right? Like one day you are satisfied, you trust God as your provider, and the next day you are consumed by your love and your passion for money. Or maybe for some of us, our lack of it. Sometimes it's the love of money that consumes us, and sometimes it's the lack of money that consumes us. Either way, it takes a place in our heart that it does not belong. And this is a crucial pivot where more important than my love of God is my pursuit of money. Where I believe that money satisfies, that money sustains. Thus we worship and revere money. Have you ever been there? And this always starts, just like any form of worship, on the internal level, and then works its way to the external. The internal anxious thoughts. Where is my stream of revenue coming from? How will I get the next thing? I've got these like, man, I bought a house. Let me tell you something. When you buy a house, there are 1,200 things to put money toward. <laughs> a lot of things need fixing and a lot of things could look more aesthetically pleasing and all of them cost money. And so like on a random day, I might found, find myself being like lured into the mindset of right now, the end all be all is my bank account. Like check in the region's account, shout out, check in the Southwest account, shout out, like how's my points? How's my, oh man, that number is getting bigger. We gotta pay that off, but the bank account doesn't quite match up. Like what in the world? And all of a sudden, like I'm consumed by this idea of like, where is the money gonna come from? And my mind is slowly like just like warped and it starts internally. And then maybe you've experienced this, maybe not, but it ends up working out externally. You find yourselves with more and more hours at the office, more and more hours on the phone, checking emails, making sure that you're getting your hours in, less and less hours being present. Now, I'm not demonizing a awesome work ethic, okay? So don't feel condemned unnecessarily. But what I'm really speaking to is the gravitational pull of the state of the heart, 
where you find your trust in God like starting to deteriorate and, and your need for money starting to get bigger and bigger, okay? And just something happens to the heart. Another word that comes to my mind when thinking about idolatry is lust. We live in an extremely lustful culture, right? This happens on a lot of levels. These are some things I thought of. Whether it's just fitting that rom-com narrative that we just obsess over, that person that is just that puzzle piece, that when that happens, all things will be made new. (laughs) When I meet that person and we are just that kind of compatible and they say that thing and I feel this thing, like everything will be all right. Shout out my married people that had that narrative broken. Even though you still love your partner, you learn very quickly, oh, you only stay like on that level so long. Then you actually have to like learn to love each other, right? But a lot of us just get lost in this narrative, like obsessed with this thing will complete me. It is no longer the spirit of God that sustains. It's no longer my identity as a child of God that sustains. It's I gotta find the person. That's one level of lust. I also know that our culture is consumed with a broken narrative of sex, like just the physical act of sex. We love it. Like we wanna get our hands on it. Literally, like we actually love sex. And some of us right now, sex has usurped God's, is that the right way to use that word? Okay, usurped God's position in our heart. We want sex, sex fulfills us, or at least theoretically we think it fulfills us more than God ever could. And so sex takes its position. We're gripped by Hollywood or by pornography or the hookup culture, and we fixate our hearts and our minds on it, and it begins to be what we believe fulfills and completes us. It starts dictating our lives, and it always starts internally. False narratives, things like, oh, I need this. I feel unsettled. This would do it. This would fix it. This would satisfy the craving that I can't seem to get rid of. I also see this with status, more than having substance is appearing to have it in our culture. How many people flew out to Fire Festival? Did anyone go to Jaw Rule? Do we know what I'm talking about? Fire Festival, Jaw Rules thing? The thing that wasn't a thing? Like come out to the thing and all this amazing stuff happened and it's not real? Did anyone see the documentary? I did not see it, but I heard about it, all right? I sound informed, I'm really not. Uh, but I know, I know that there was this allure, right? There was like the status of this thing, like this, this like dream, this like, this idea that had no actual anything, right? But so many people invested a lot of money to go to this thing that never actually existed. And I look at that and I kind of laugh at it. But then I go, we're not that far from that concept. Like, we love to appear like things. If you don't believe that, walk on 12 South. And if you didn't come dressed up ready to go on 12 South, you immediately recognize you are inferior, right? Like, and I'm not, criti- I, hey, look, I was at Bar Taco last week, all right? It was incredible. I had a great experience. I love 12 South. I like it, all right? What I'm saying, though, if you've ever walked on that street or a street like it, you immediately feel this like, wait, what are we all concerned with right now? How does everyone look, walk, and talk this perfect all the time, right? It's like, they don't, but on 12 South, that's just kind of the thing you do, right? That's what Instagram is. It's selling substance whether you have it or not. We are obsessed with status, more so than who I actually am. Who do people think I am? That is important. Right? I feel like that can lure us into idolatry. I also believe our culture deals with self-love that has turned into self-worship. 
we're really good at doing this. We take good things and distort them. So I'm about to name some actually really good and powerful things, but we have also, we have to be careful. I think we distort them, okay? We start asking questions like, wait, what do I actually need? I'm, cons- I'm always worried about everyone else, but what about me, right? That can be a healthy transition, okay? I'm not demonizing that transition. What do I want? What makes me happy? The biggest one right now that I have went through in a healthy and sometimes unhealthy way, and it's been very helpful at times, okay? What makes me feel loved? How can you love me better, right? Good questions, very helpful in friendship and dating relationships. These have helped me. But I've watched as these good questions can accidentally lead to self-obsession, and suddenly God begins to struggle to cater to our perceived needs as if that is how it should work. When self-care turns into self-worship, we'll find that God often falls short, which is actually impossible, but we'll feel it. When we fall into this like black hole of what do I, what do I, what do I, how do I, how do I, how do you love me, love me, love me? And then all of a sudden, like God is falling short, everyone's falling short, and only on the best days is everyone just hitting it just right for you. But more days than not, you don't feel like you're being loved enough, you don't have the needs met that you want to have met. Does that make sense? I'm not trying to be harsh on that culture, okay? I know that it's good to take care of ourselves, so I am not demonizing self-care. I also see some potential thorns in it, all right? This is why worship is crucial. It reminds our thirsty heart of the only thing that satisfies. Just as importantly as we worship God, we also say that what is not God is not God. It is not me. I do not come into worship worshiping myself. I do not come into worshiping worshiping that or that or that. It's not in sex. It's not in money. It's not in status. It's not in myself. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. When we come into worship, we recognize that only God Worship says, no, those things are not God. God is God, and those things pale in comparison, and I lay those down. That my God is the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac. An essential component in worship is the word surrender. Surrender. In a world that says acquire and protect and defend and hide, I believe that worship begs of us our surrender, coming before God, saying, not my will, but yours be done. That is at some points a very large and intimidating step for us to take. But I believe that that your life, that the abundant life is on the other side of you willingly making the choice, not being wooed into, surrendering your heart to the Lord and every single bit of it. And worship is a great space to do that. Okay, Um, another aspect of of worship, and I'm gonna walk through these rather rapidly, and also I can get off of this. Okay, return to you. All right, another thing worship does, it names, uh, it declares the praise of God. Psalm 89, eight says, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? You rule the reign of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Worship brags and boasts in God. It's very fun when you get lost in this. I remember this song by a guy named Trip Lee called Can I Brag on My Lord? Low key cheesy, but it was rap and it was about God, so I was in on it. And uh, it was incredible, but it was this moment where he goes, hey, can I just take a minute 
to boast in the things that God has done before me and is doing in me right now and will do long after I'm gone. Like, can I just take a second to brag? God speaks and existence happens. Let's just dwell on that for a little bit. Like, God has always been, I am in this minute eye blink of a moment. Let's just sit on that for a little bit. Let's declare the praises of an all-powerful, all-righteous, perfect, all-consuming fire that is our God. Worship declares the praise of God. Worship also names the attributes of God. Psalm 116, five through six says, gracious is the Lord and righteous. To have a God that is both righteous and gracious that is insane, and I think we just we hear these words so often, but to know that he is an all-consuming fire, yet he's a gentle, loving father is such a luxury of being a human, that he will be righteous and perfect and unmatched in all things, but also gracious and loving, that we can sing good, good father and mean it is a miracle that he chooses to be this way. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Worship also remembers the promises of God, both those fulfilled and yet to be fulfilled. We remember the fulfilled promises of God, which gives us the energy and the faith to remember that the unfulfilled promise of God will at one point be fulfilled. We remember the fulfilled promises like God would deliver the people of Israel out of Egypt, like God would bring a Messiah to a world that desperately needs him and he did come. And then we remember the promises that are yet to be fulfilled, that God will one day restore heaven and earth once again. That this situation is temporary, but that a permanent heaven and earth is on its way and Jesus will come back. Worship is also so essential in lamenting. I want you to write this passage down and read it sometime this week. Psalm 77, this is an aspect of worship. I've talked about this before here, probably two or three times. This is an aspect of worship that I think sometimes we can miss on the individual and communal level, how honest and raw worship can be. If you read Psalm 77, the first nine verses are much different than the next 11. In the first nine verses, you get this idea that this guy is declaring to the Lord that God has forgotten how to be God. He's like, I just like with outstretched hands, can't sleep, can't be comforted. Have you forgotten to be merciful? He's saying things that make you uncomfortable. Like, I don't think you should say that toward God. Say it about something different and kind of imply that it's about God, but don't just like say that to him, right? And he just says all these things. Just like letting God know how uncomfortable and frustrated and doubtful and angry he is. And the next 11 verses he goes, but I will remember And he starts proclaiming the things that God has done and his ancestors, things that he wasn't even a part of, but he reclaims who God is and he worships the name of God. And if you have not had a good time of worship where you were both angry and sad and faithful and trusting and doubtful and skeptical and all of the things just mixed up into some weird experience, like if you haven't had a time of worship where all of those things were invited, I would say you're missing out on something beautiful. That the broken heart does not prevent worship. In fact, I think it invites it all the more. That when you're broken, when you're doubtful, when you're hurting, when you're angry, and you don't know what to do with all the pent-up rage in your chest, you need to punch something, worship would be an appropriate place to start. As odd as that might sound, I believe there's something here for, for us. If you are brokenhearted, worship. If you are doubtful, worship. If you're skeptical, worship. I, uh, there's this family that goes to Cannery, and uh, this happened last week. 
um, they had to have a funeral for their nine-month-old son. And um, just, uh, just gut-wrenching, just heartbreaking, like stuff that we would just hope for no one that we can imagine experiencing. And, and at the funeral, I didn't get to go, but a few of the pastors that are at Cannery went and they just started explaining the scene and how just surreal it was because the people attending, um, it didn't happen to them. And so they were trying to empathize. And so by empathizing, they were just sitting solemnly and were just like there and comforting and peacefully, right? But the parents and the grandparents were very faithful. And, and, and the mom said, whether my son is in the hands of God or my hands, like God is good. And she like claims this. And you can imagine, as awkward, you even feel a little bit of awkwardness right now of a mom saying that about her dead child, going like, whichever one of us is getting to hold my son, God is good. And the, the people that were telling me about the story were explaining like it was kind of weird at first because they started leading worship and people didn't know how to respond. But they were declaring like Jesus resurrected from the dead and we will experience resurrection. If it doesn't happen now, it will happen. This is not the end all be all. I will see my son again. We will resurrect from the dead. Like, and they led a worship service and slowly people began to worship as they slowly gained their comfort level. And I wonder like, if we're willing to let our worship infiltrate places like that in our lives. Worship is a place where we declare the fulfilled promises of God, but also the unfulfilled, that this will happen. Like one day, God will deliver his promise. We will resurrect. We will be with him. Earth and heaven will be made new. Worship reminds us of who God is and maybe just as importantly, who God isn't. On the internal and external level, this takes place. Last thing I wanna talk about, and then we'll go to communion, is when does worship happen, all right? When does worship take place? I'm about to blow your minds. Whenever you worship, worship takes place, all right? Whenever you worship, worship takes place. Jesus says, when two or more gather in my name, I'm already there. Worship is our chance to meet Jesus where he already is. The heart can be wooed. That word is funny, wooed. But that should not be the number one strategy. Choice, the choosing to worship, is kind of like the choosing to apologize or the choosing to say, I love you, when the heart's not quite there. You ever had your mom or the teacher say, say you're sorry? And through gritted teeth and a lying heart, you said, I'm sorry. And then the person in the same fashion went, I forgive you, right? But have you ever noticed that actually kind of helped just a little? Like just doing the action was like, okay, at least we talked something's getting softened. Maybe that didn't happen, okay? Let's just pretend we're in a really cool scenario where the action led the emotion, all right? Or have you ever had a moment where you've had to look at someone and when you didn't mean it, but you knew you needed to say it, said, I love you? Like, I love you. I know that these dishes are not gonna be the cause of this thing not working, right? I love you, all right? This is not important, right? Have you ever had a moment of learning to let your choices lead your emotions? Right? If you're like me, you go, heck no. Emotions, driver's seat, forever and always. And that way of life is a very curvy, windy, up and down road, is it not? Maturity is when you can teach your emotions to follow your discipline. When you go, I know that I feel all the rage in the world, but I also know I was wrong. I'm sorry, and I'm trusting my heart will at some point fall in line. And if you'll notice, it often does. I don't feel like I love you, but I know I love you. I know that's what's needed. I love you and your heart slowly but surely over the next 20 years falls in line, right? As you just keep 
just hitting the, what's the game where you hit the things? And that's your pride. I was just trying to give an example. It failed, all right? But, but to be a people where we let our choices lead our emotions at times. And so if you're asking, hey, when does worship take place? On an individual and a communal level, I want us to hear this as a family. I think this is really important, okay? Then we'll go to communion. Worship happens when we worship. It does not happen when we nail the set. When the cadence, the tempo, the pitch, everything is just perfect and you're just swept away. That is not when worship happens. Worship does not happen when I've entertained you to perfection for the next 35 minutes. Worship does not only happen when something epic has happened, right? Worship happens whenever God's people choose to worship. That is when it takes place. If you've ever went, man, the worship environment was just kind of off today. Did you worship in that moment? Or did the environment that we suppose is real dictate whether or not we worshiped, right? When this place, and I, I love our work, so I'm not like coming down on us like super hard right now, um, but when this place, when we in unison go, hey, we worship today, we're gonna declare the praises. All the doubt in my heart, all the joy in my heart, all of it's welcome, but we are gonna worship the Lord. This place, will, it will worship. <laughs> like all of us will go, man, the environment today. Like, that was amazing. Like, what was going on? People came and worshiped. Like, that's all that happened. And I would say the same thing on an individual level. What I pictured in my head as I was thinking through this this week was like getting on a bike and those initial pedals, the tension you feel, the struggle of just, I want this stupid bike, miraculously grow an engine and just do this for me, right? Like, I hate the first, like, or going up the hill. But once you pedal long enough, you can actually stop pedaling and you see yourself just like coasting. I would encourage us with worship to have that same kind of mentality like riding a bike. Like be willing to press through those first one or two songs where you're just like, I just want to sleep right now. That's what I want. Or I just want to be mad and that is it. I just want to be apathetic and that is it. I would encourage you, a place of maturation for all of us, including me, is making the intentional choice, the conscious decision to enter into worship and watch as your heart falls in line. Sometimes it won't, keep going, be persistent. Sometimes it will, okay? All right, I don't know, um, hold on, I have done, yeah, that was a while. All right, um, great, okay. We will talk about how this plays out practically in two weeks. Next week is Easter. It's gonna be epic. Come ready to worship. It's gonna, we're gonna practice next week and then we're gonna talk about practicing the week after that. Um, it's gonna be amazing. But for now, I'd love for us to go get communion. Um, so let's go ahead and stand up, exit towards the middle and, and grab communion in the front and in the back. And I'm gonna lead us through uh, an exercise as we enter into, guess what? Worship, all right? Yeah, we'll take communion together as a, as a church and then a, uh, we're gonna do a little worship kind of exercise, if you will, but I invite you to hold out the bread. As you hold the bread, to just, just remember and reflect on the reality that God did not stand at a distance, but he became human, and that he took on flesh, and that when scripture boasts that God uh, can empathize, he sympathizes with our weaknesses, he actually does. Like whatever things you're feeling, God can go, I, I've been there, because he took on flesh and thanks be to God that he did that. Let's take the bread together. And now holding the cup. Man, I picture that moment in the garden where Jesus said, take this cup from me. And it just, 
it blows my mind that after saying, take this cup from me, AKA, like take the cross from me, if there's another way, let's take it. But he said, your will be done, not my will, your will be done. And he gets up and he gives himself up. He knows his arresters are coming. He knows the cross is coming. He just asked that it wouldn't happen if, if it'd be the Lord's will. But then he said, whatever you want. And he willingly gives up his life for us. That Jesus didn't come and, and just like do the good teacher thing and talk about how loved we all are, but that he shed his blood to prove how much, how deep, how for real the love of God is for you. And if you're struggling to believe that this week, I just want you to picture Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. Only a heart of just 1 million percent compassion and love can speak those words in that moment. But he didn't stay dead. He resurrected, and we're gonna go hard celebrating this next week. He resurrected to give you and me permanent victory over all sin and over death. Let's take the cup together. Thank you, Jesus.